My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. This episode is brought to you by the documentary Blue, which is very dear to my heart. I interviewed the film's director, Karina Holden, after it premiered at the Sydney Film Festival last year, and I've been a massive fan ever since. It is a beautifully shot movie that tells a compelling story about ocean change, but it's more than that. This is a campaign film, helping to build a movement, gathering people together who want to protect our oceans, which are facing extraordinary human-caused onslaughts from multiple directions, from plastic pollution to overfishing and global warming. The film Blue features seven ocean guardians, including Dr Jennifer Lavers, who was on an early episode of this podcast, and we will share a link if you want to go back and revisit that one. Madison Stewart, a.k.a. Shark Girl, is in it, as is the diving legend Valerie Taylor and the plastic pollution campaigner Tim Silverwood. It just launched internationally and it's having great reactions in the UK, the US and Canada. And it's interesting to see how it's been picked up by the fashion set. They just recently held screenings with Stella McCartney's sustainability teams in London and New York. If you haven't seen it, you can buy it through iTunes. But the really lovely thing about this project is that it's about community. And I was just talking to Karina and she said that what they really love is when people host their own screenings. And that is easy to do. It's through Demand Film. And to find out how, you just hop on the Blue website, which is bluethefilm.org. Okay, you're going to get to hang out with one of those ocean guardians, my friend Tim Silverwood. I've learned a lot from Tim, and I reckon that you're going to feel exactly the same after joining our conversation. He is an environmentalist, a surfer, a plastic pollution campaigner. He's a thought leader. He's a brain box. I can't think of anyone who knows more about the plastics issue. But he's also a doer, a true change maker. He's been working in this space for many, many years and was way ahead of the game on it. Tim is the CEO of Take Three for the Sea 
a charity that's all about tackling ocean plastics. And he also runs a company called Rechoosable that offers sustainable alternatives to single-use plastic utensils. You might have seen him on the ABC's War on Waste last season. Or if you have kids, or indeed if you are one, you might have seen him at your school. He's given hundreds of talks to schools, communities and businesses on this issue. This interview was recorded live at the Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne, and I've been saving it up until now to support Plastic Free July. And do make sure that you check out their Instagram and join the movement. If you don't know what a mermaid's tear is, you're about to find out. We cover everything from how ocean currents work to the Great Pacific garbage patch and what you can do to help beat plastic pollution today. Now, before the session at the festival, we played the audience the trailer from Blue. And it went down a treat. So to get us in the mood, I'm going to play you the audio from the trailer. No matter where you live on our planet, you're connected to the sea. Yet in my lifetime, half of all marine life has disappeared. This is a hidden crisis falling on silent shores. One, two, three, go! The marine world that I knew 40, 50 years ago, no young person today will ever see it. The barrier reef has changed dramatically over the years. They're now one of the most threatened animals on Earth. There it goes. The ocean has done so much for us. Now there's an opportunity to do something meaningful for the ocean to offer it our protection. The ocean is the mother of all life on this planet. We can save our ocean and the life it supports, but it requires action. This is our home, our future. precious life in your hands, you can't help but feel we can do more. Do you think one person can make a difference? One person can make a difference. Hello everyone and welcome. I'm so excited to see all your faces here today. I'd like you all to give a warm welcome to Tim. I'm going to read a quote from Tim because I love it. He says, Change isn't going to be easy, but there's no time to procrastinate or hope that someone else is going to fix it. It's time to do something, and you are the person you've been waiting for. Tim, I wonder if you might start by just trying to put this conversation in context for us. We often hear this statistic or this fact that there's going to be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. But I feel like I've heard that a few times and it's hard to envisage it. What does it actually mean, Tim? How much plastic is out there and what are we seeing out there in our oceans? 
So it's definitely one of the most uh, confounding facts and statistics that's out there at the moment. It only came out a couple of years ago. I think it was the Ellen MacArthur Foundation as part of their new plastics economy report. And it's essentially putting a very visceral and visual image in our minds. We know the statistics that we're agreeing upon is over 8 million tonnes of new plastic inputs into the ocean every year. So the ocean is downhill from everywhere and we're using more and more of this material, most of it for so-called single-use purposes. And waste management around the world is clearly lacking. So we know it's all going in. But at the same time, we have the industrialization and the commercialization of our oceans. So we're taking all this biomass out. And so to think about in the future, in just a few decades' time, those scales tip to the point where there's more plastic than fish. I just find that as one of those statistics where you just put a stake in the ground and you're like, no, you will not pass. Like we, have, we can't let that happen. We simply cannot let the scales tip in favour of plastic over biomass in our oceans. It's just, well, not on my watch anyway. What about the data around where this stuff is coming from? Can you give us an idea of how much comes from land-based sources and how much comes from boats or from fishermen? Or where is it coming from? Where is this stuff channeling into the ocean from? Is it from us? Yeah, it's definitely from us. Look, that same report that calculated 8 million tonnes of plastic inputs into the ocean each year, they basically ranked the top 20 nations. And in that top 20 nations, the United States came in at 20. The other 19 were from what we would call developing regions. So they're areas where waste management is, is very, very lacking or is very, very broken. But at the same time, of course, when we go out and do beach cleanups, particularly in exotic destinations like Hawaii and remote islands, we see lots of debris coming from the shipping and the fishing industry because all those materials, they're designed to last a really long time. Big, thick ropes and big, strong buckets and crates. But I would like to say that that pales in significance in comparison to what is from land-based sources. But Tim, how does it get there? Because I'm presuming that most people are not actually throwing the waste directly into the ocean. Is it blowing from garbage trucks? Is it blowing off landfill? I've been using this term lately. It's collateral damage. You just simply cannot have a society which consumes this material, this plastic, in a single-use or a short-term context. You simply can't have that without huge inputs entering the ocean. In Australia, we're phenomenal. We often get people from developing regions going, well, what are you complaining about? You guys are so clean. We're definitely not perfect, and the crew down here from Beach Patrol around Port Phillip Bay will certainly solidify that. But we are pretty good. But it's just the result of our consumption. Sure, we have incredible waste management and infrastructure to deal with our waste, but always it's going to slip through the cracks. It's going to fall out of those overflowing garbage bins, those trucks. It's going to just... There's just a lot of collateral damage when you consume the amount of plastic that we're currently consuming. Tim, what's the weirdest bit of plastic rubbish you've ever found on a beach cleanup? Uh, sex toys. Definitely the weirdest ones. So Sydney Harbour, <laughs> you see all sorts of things entering Sydney Harbour. And uh, yeah, I do not know what the... St- I, I actually love getting out there and doing beach cleanups and being a bit of a forensic analysis. You know, you're like, where did this come from? What's the story behind this item? I decided I wouldn't go into any sort of forensic studies on that particular array of uh, pollution items. Moving on, what other things do you find when you do beach cleanups or when you're out there on the sand and in the ocean? Toothbrushes, pen lids, things that are mistaken by birds and fish for food? 
Yeah, obviously the array of stuff you can find on beach cleanups or cleanups around the bay or the rivers is amazing. There's so much there. Often you'll find stuff and you are thinking forensically around where it came from stuff that may have gone through the sewage treatment system. So quite often you'll find things and people would recognise them initially as like chupa chup sticks, the plastic chupa chup sticks, but then you look closely and they've got little markings on either end and it turns out they're cotton tips or earbuds. And that's because people are essentially popping them down the toilet at home and anything which goes down the drain at home is privy to ending up in the ocean because during high peak waterfall rainfall events, they often have to sort of allow a lot of stuff to surplus go through those sewage treatment systems or they're simply too small to be captured and you'll find them now in our ocean so have a think about it when you're out there at the beach cleaning up where did this come from how did it get here and of course how can we mitigate against it being there again i recently went on a straw call in sydney harbour to collect plastic straws that have ended up around the Manly Bay, Manly Cove area. And we found loads of them. And on this particular beach cleanup thing that they've been doing for four weeks, they'd found 700 straws that are those little cocktail straws that come from bars around the area. Americans use, we don't have stats for Australia that I know of, but Americans use 500 million straws a day. Isn't that insane? So I think the population of America is only about 300 million, so that means some people are using more than one straw a day, but 500 million plastic straws a day. And as shocking as that is, I'd then celebrate... I'm a very glass-half-full kind of person, so I'd celebrate the enormous momentum which is building around plastic straws at the moment. We've all been frustrated for a while saying, how come there's not a bigger campaign, a bigger conversation about plastic straws? But just in the last six to eight months, there's been a huge boost in awareness and great initiatives like Harriet's Strawkle project. You've got big celebrities like Adrian Grenier getting um, Hollywood on board. So he's got on board with the straws uh, campaign? His campaign is called hashtag stop sucking. So stop sucking everyone. There's so many great puns that you can make with the, uh, with the straws. Straws suck. They do. You know what freaked me out the most? It was nerdles. Does everyone know what a nerdle is? I only found this out late about a few weeks ago, so N-U-R-D-L-E-S. It was told to me by a woman in Western Australia. Her name is Claire O'Loughlin, and she is looking into creating a sustainable swimwear label called Ocean Remedy, which is about circularity and trying to prove that we can close the loop on this plastic by using fabric that has been made from ocean shoreline waste, plastic bottles, and then also looking at how we capture the fibres. But she told me about the nurdles... What are the nurdles, Tim? So nurdles, um, they've had all sorts of names in the past, mermaids, tears, but they're essentially the resin pellets when we manufacture plastic as a, as a material. So for those of you unfamiliar, plastic, it starts its life as oil or natural gas, and then we use chemistry to synthesise all these different types of plastic. There's over 40,000 different types of plastic. But when it goes through that uh, creation process, it gets chopped up into these little tiny beads. They're the size of a, a fish egg. How want, You'd kind of say about the size of a... It's, they're small, right? They're about five millimetres, I suppose. But they're sacks of creepy little balls that are basically poured into these things to melt down to make our plastic. And then when they escape, which, of course, imagine a beanbag bursting and all the little polystyrene bits... That's happening with the plastic and then someone will come along and sweep them up down the drain or they blow out of the bags. We could solve that problem by not having little nerdles. We could have bigger ones that didn't escape so quickly, right? 
No. Uh, I don't know how they feel about that. The uh, manufacturing industry is obviously built around a very um, controlled way of doing things. But what the thing about Nurdles is it shows that often we get told, oh, it's, it's people's fault. People are the ones who littered and people can be taught to, to do the right thing. But when you look at the pollution from Nurdles, people don't handle Nurdles, at least consumers don't. So it's coming from the plastic industry, it's coming from the transportation and the manufacture. I've heard horrific stories where at plastic manufacturing facilities, at the end of the day when they're doing their cleanup, out come the big fire hoses and everything gets washed down and they just used to treat those Nurdles as something that disappears, goes away. But of course, we know that the uh, waterways and our oceans are away in many cases. There is no away. I learnt that from your friend, Jennifer Lavers, who is a marine bird specialist who's also in the film Blue. But this idea that we throw things away, there is no way. We throw things out of sight. I want to ask you an out of sight question, Tim. I'm jumping forwards. I was going to come to this later, but In your 20s, you made a trip to the Himalayas where you were snowboarding. You thought you were throwing your rubbish responsibly away. Would you like to tell us the story of what you discovered and how it made you feel? Yep, so um, in my 20s, I'd just been doing a lot of travel. I'd finished my sustainability degree at university but was feeling a little... A little bit disillusioned at the opportunities to go out and use my, my skills and so travelling with my surfboard and my snowboard was, was what I chose to do. And I just finished this big long trip sort of surfing in Indonesia and backpacking around Southeast Asia and it finished up in the Himalaya at this um, destination called Gulmarg which is a beautiful village in Kashmir in, in India. And it was amazing. I was just absolutely astounded by the beauty of this place. But then what happened was I was um, getting a little bit interested in where all the rubbish went. So I asked a few questions and they said, oh, well, you know, we, we burn rubbish. We have an incinerator, which is commonplace right throughout the developing regions where they burn waste because that's how it goes away. But the snowfall had meant that there was no access to the incinerator. So instead, all the rubbish that they were collecting was dumped over the side of the mountain. And so I went and checked this out and I couldn't believe it because here I was and my waste, which I'd managed responsibly, was now being dumped over the side of the mountain in the highest range on earth and that meant it was going to go on that monumental odyssey to one day end up in the ocean that I love so dearly. And so I think I saw in that moment my embedded involvement in the issue but also the huge range of impacts from up high to down low and everything in between. We're going to get a little later on into the story of how Tim became an activist and what he did after that. But before we do so, I want to just double back, if you will, to that question of small plastics. So picking up where we left off with the nurdles. I think many people in this room would be aware of the pretty noisy conversation we're now starting to have around microplastic fibres. And I work in fashion, so I'm often asked help you know, we want to choose the most sustainable fibre. Is a recycled polyester going to be a good idea if potentially we're washing these fibres down the drain and into our water systems and into our oceans? Tim, what do you know about the microfibre problem and about what we're seeing in the sea with plastic pollution, with these tiny fibres that are coming off our clothes? Yes, yeah, certainly leading academics who've been looking into the impact of fibres are speculating it's probably the most um, abundant form of pollution in the ocean is fibres from from textiles and 
I can't dispute that when you consider that seven, over 7 billion people and all of us are wearing fibres every day. We, we wear clothes, we wash clothes. I would say that Dr Mark Brown, who's really the leading academic in this space at the moment, he, he's got some really wonderful ideas. I think the first thing that he's saying is, until we know more through science, let's not go and make big, brash decisions because... If you look at the precautionary principle, it has to be founded on really strong scientific advice. And so even though we're putting lots of focus and pointing the blame at the synthetic fibres, he's there saying, well, we actually don't know whether the, the wools and the cottons and they may have their own impact associated with absorbing uh, chemical pollutants and transferring them into the food chain. But what I really like about his philosophy is at this point in time, if you are involved in fashion or you're looking to use these materials... He's got this idea of benign by design, which essentially says, test the material, test it and see how much fibres, whether they're natural or synthetic, are going to be shed from the washing process. And I like that. If you're going to make a swimsuit out of this material, at least put it through those cycles and test how many fibres. And doing so, you might realise you've got a material which doesn't shed fibres compared to the other ones on the market. He actually likens it to the pharmaceuticals industry. And he says, we wouldn't let companies simply put out untested drugs onto the market and say, oh, well, we'll see if they're bad later. And he says, why can't we do that with manufacturing and with clothing? It's an interesting point. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to change the system. And his other big thing is filtration systems on our washing machines. So at the moment, there's no real leaders in the market that I know of in the washing machine space that are putting out these filters that can capture microfibers. There's lots of startups out there like Guppy Friend and various other people that are trying to find ways you can wash your clothes and capture your own fibers. But I think mandatory filtration on washing machines makes absolute sense if we know that's the source of literally trillions and trillions and trillions of these fibres that simply don't belong in our oceans and our waterways. Patagonia is actually doing some great work in this space and recognising that they, working in the recycled fleece area, for instance, may well be part of the problem. And if you're aware of some of the work that Patagonia does as a company, it's actually amazing. They really are pouring money into grassroots environmental groups and looking at supporting Guppy Friend. You mentioned that. That's actually a laundry bag. It's a simple thing. It's a bag. You put your stuff in it, you zip it up, and then when you wash it, it captures these fibres. Now, what we're going to do with the fibres that we've caught, no one yet knows. I suppose pop it in the landfill for now. It's better than it going into the ocean. So There was research that came out last September, Tim, which found that I think that the average globally was 83% of tap water now contains microplastics. Do you know much about this? Did you read that research? Yeah, that was a very um, powerful study there, looking at how microfibres are making their way into our drinking water. Look, I think the next conversation around fibres is, you know what it's like even when you make your bed at home and maybe the sunlight's coming in through the window and you just see this cloud of dust. We're walking around in offices with synthetic carpet we are just surrounded by the, the residue of our lives, be it synthetic or be it natural. So I think the conversation on fibres has only just begun. Even everyone walking around today, if clothes are going to be brushing up against each other, we're shedding fibres every single day. So just try and be zero impact. You might need to walk around naked. All right, let's talk more about the big stuff, the bigger plastics that are polluting our oceans. I'm going to read a quote to you, Tim, from Charles Moore. And then I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about what he discovered and how. 
He said, the throwaway society cannot be contained. It's gone global. We simply can't store and maintain or recycle all of our stuff. We have to throw it away. The market can do a lot for us, but it can't fix the natural system in the ocean we've broken. All of the king's horses and all of the king's men will never gather up all of the plastic and put the ocean back together again. Oh, Charlie Moore, what a legend. Charles Moore is the fellow who essentially coined the term the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, or at least the media did when he started speaking out about what he witnessed. It was back in about 1997. He was sailing from the Hawaiian Islands back to California, found himself becalmed in the doldrums and could not believe the plastic he was seeing around his vessel. And so he embarked on a journey of discovery. And in doing so, he, he coined those, um, those bold expressions and has really done so much for the issue and continues to. But yeah, it's really um, poignant, particularly that last closing sentence. There's, there's no way that we can go out there and miraculously clean up our oceans. And cleaning up, it's not going to do anything unless we turn off the tap. So our focus really has to be on solving this problem at the source. That's what we need to do there. And so at the moment, recycling, it's come out of a couple of decades where it's been championed as the solution. Recycling is going to be the saviour. It's not. Recycling is a good place to start, but a bad place to stop. We've got to try and look at where the, um, the sheer consumption of these materials is leading to landfills filling up, more incineration and waste to energy and obviously pollution and fix all of them by stemming our consumption and being just much smarter with design. And that's where the circular economy comes in as probably one of the most uh, powerful movements that I'm seeing uh, grow around the world now. When you began to research all of this stuff and you were looking into the work of Charles Moore, you read a book by a guy called Curtis Ebersmeyer. I learnt his name from you, but I remember the story. The story was about the rubber ducks. Can you share with us a little bit about that book and what he found, Curtis found? Yeah, so Curtis Ebersmeyer was an oceanographer but also an avid beach cleaner. And so beach comers often are out there and just like I am, they're thinking forensically around where did this come from, how did this get here? And what happened, this is probably going back to the late 80s or early 90s, a cargo vessel uh, lost a whole bunch of bath toys overboard. So you think about where our goods come from, they're mostly shipped around the world on those huge cargo ships and 10,000 of those uh, containers are roughly lost every year. So high weather events, storms, over they go. Some of them will remain intact and sink to the bottom, others will crack open and the uh, contents will spill out. And so through the spillage of those Chinese um, bath toys, they were really starting to get an understanding about ocean currents because people communicated, oh, I found them here and I found them there. And suddenly he was like, wow, this is proving my theories around how ocean currents are circulating um, materials around our planet. And fast forward now, all you've got to do is go and look online, search up the NASA Goddard uh, satellites, and you can watch the most incredible imagery mapping how our oceans move. Our oceans are not static. We, we know about the East Australian current and a few other big ones, big systems, but it's so dynamic. The ocean is always moving. And of course, if plastic is in the ocean and it floats, it's going to move on those currents and it's going to start to gather and converge in these large gyres. You just couldn't script it, could you? The little duck that is finding its way around these currents and then you can track it and see it. Even a better story was the same um, time frame with these beachcombing communities. A container of 
I think it was Reebok or Nike sneakers went overboard. And because at the time they were a very expensive product, people started organising uh, swap meets where they'd bring along, well, I've got a size 11 in, uh, in a left foot. Who's got a size 11 in a right? And they were matching up and they were going, yeah, sweet, free sneakers. Pretty incredible. I have never heard that. Tim, after you read that book and did some more research into this big problem of plastic pollution, you decided that you would go and see it for yourself. And I'm talking about your visit to Hawaii. I wonder if you might be able to tell us what you found on so-called Plastic Beach, where there's marine debris from 5,000 kilometres away. Yep. So in 2011, Take 3 for the Sea had really started to get quite a boost. We just won a grant from Taronga Zoo, a $50,000 grant. And I was feeling really fired up that this is an opportunity to, to get out there and speak about this critical issue. And in doing so, I discovered um, in my research that Charles Moore's foundation, Algalita Marine Research Institute, was organising an expedition to the garbage patch. And the way that they funded the expeditions to do their research was to bring on people. So artists and activists and scientists would join in and help to fund the voyage. And I remember reading that article online and going, I'm going on that boat. Like, nothing else mattered. I quit my job. I crowdfunded and hosted events to raise the $20,000, and off I went. And the journey started by looking at the impact of plastic pollution on the Hawaiian Islands. I went to Camilo Beach on the, on the Big Island, which is that one that you've probably seen. It just gets this huge barrage of pollution on a daily basis from the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And then from there, I joined the vessel and we spent three weeks sailing to Canada and doing research into this problem. It was a remarkable experience. And what did you see there? Because I think there's this perception that you will see a floating island of big chunks of plastic. That's not really what it looks like, is it? No, that's right. It's a real misnomer that there's so-called garbage patches or floating islands in the sea. Essentially, out in the middle of the gyre, the ocean looked beautiful, blue and crisp and delicious. We did see some large accumulations of ghost nets and various other big pieces of shipping debris, but the ocean looks normal. But when you do your scientific analysis, you scoop through the ocean surface with a small net and you realise there's plastic in every single sample. And then you start to do the math in your mind and you go, wow, I'm thousands of miles from land, there's microplastic here, and you start to realise that the ocean is now full of plastic. It's being found in the sea ice, in the poles. It's being found on every beach in the world. We're going to the deepest ocean trenches and finding it. We have literally contaminated our ocean and we've done so in about 60 years' time. So we've done so on all of our collective watch. When I hear you say that, I just feel cross, really, really angry and just a bit bewildered as to what we can do about it. Now, Tim, I know you're doing a lot about it with Take Three for the Sea, for example, but I want to know how you feel when you see that, and especially when you first went to Hawaii as an ocean lover and as someone who feels such a connection with the sea. How did you feel? Look, I felt... um motivated. I felt inspired. I guess I said before, I don't think I could be an environmentalist if I was a glass half empty kind of person. You simply can't look at these human impacts on our oceans and our environment and say, oh, that's a shame and move on. You've got to feel that fired up 
desire to try and make it better. And, and that's where I think it probably comes down to some of my philosophical beliefs as well, because it was those first images I saw, like you've probably all seen, of Chris Jordan's images of the albatross full of plastic or the heartbreaking images of these innocent creatures that suffered because of our convenience. And so every time I was out there doing my take three for the sea or trying to educate someone to minimise their plastic footprint, I was thinking about the other species that we share this planet with because that, to me, once again, the collateral damage associated with this issue, it's just not on. We need to try and mitigate it so we can give these other organisms a chance to survive because, like I said, they're innocent. Have you guys seen those images of the albatross with the plastic in its stomach? It's so confronting, isn't it? Tim, when you talk about your glass half full mentality that makes you into the activist that you are, I'm just really interested, where does that come from? Would you like to share a little bit about what you were like as a kid? I know that you grew up at the beach and looking in rock pools and you're a surfer. What was Tim Silverwood like before he was activist Tim? Yeah, I was uh, very lucky, I suppose, to grow up with the ocean at um, easy access and my mum loved going and taking me to the beach and exploring those rock pools and so I developed a relationship with those oceans and waterways and as we know you, you protect what you love but the ocean love affair really went into overdrive during my teens. My, myself and my two good friends, Kerry and Simon, used to get out there on our boogie boards at every opportunity and go surfing. And eventually I, I got into um, all sorts of surfing. And yeah, I think it really does come down to that realisation that it gives you so much. The least I can do, now that I know the harm that we're causing, is give something back. And I also feel like it's really possible the impacts that we've had and the rate at which we've been having impacts is just completely unacceptable. So knowing that we can all work collectively together and we can create change, that's an incredibly inspiring and motivating feeling. What about, though, before you got to that point and when you were a surfer, I remember you telling me something, Tim, about a memory you have of seeing plastic bobbing around outside the, in the ocean at the back and feeling, i got to pick that up. Where does that come from in you? Do all surfers do this? No, a lot of surfers do uh, feel that urge to go and out of their way and, and pick up plastic if they see it. But I even remember as an early teen and no one would have told me that I should have picked it up. There was certainly no education that that plastic may cause harm. But yeah, I'd go and paddle over the breakers, maybe miss my spot in the line at the surf break and what? grab that plastic bag and, and put it up my sleeve. But I probably got the better wave anyway because, you know, karma and all that. What does surfing teach you about being a person that needs to look after our natural world? I say that as the wife of a surfer. It does stuff to you, doesn't it? Yeah. I think the biggest thing that any sort of ocean pursuit, whether you're a sailor or a diver or a swimmer or a surfer, it's about being amongst something that's way bigger than you. And you get that when you go into a forest as well. You realise that you're part of this system and you are just that. You're a little microscopic part of a beautiful complex system. And so the more you understand about the fragility attached to those systems, potentially the more you're gonna feel inspired to try and protect it. And like I said, you protect what you love. And I absolutely love the ocean. I've got a vested interest. <laughs> the last thing I wanna do, I hear all these stories about surfers around the world who they can't even go surfing after heavy rain events in many cities in the world because of the pollution. And I'm like, I live in Bondi at the moment and it used to have that. It used to have sewage treatment going straight into the ocean without any major um, treatment. 
And I don't want that. I want to be able to go and surf in the most beautiful ocean that I possibly can. And I want any of the incoming generations to have the same opportunity. Talking of surfers, Dave Rastovich. He's like a guru surfer, but I know that you met Dave early on in your anti-plastics journey. Would you like to tell us just what he was doing at that point? Because it's quite fascinating. Yeah, I think what really inspired me about Dave Rastovich, he was uh, he started a charity called Surfers for Cetaceans. And when the film The Cove came out, remember The Cove came out back in probably 2008, 2009? He was really championing uh, that. He featured in the film The Cove. And he did this incredible expedition where he left Byron Bay in these little Hobie kayaks. They're these kayaks that you can power by your feet, but there's also a sail. And they had five of them. They said, we're just going to sail and kayak down to Bondi Beach. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So off he did, and he did this tour called Transparency. And I just happened to be on a surfing trip up at uh, near Crescent Head at a place called Point Plummer on the New South Wales East Coast. And he came in and the whole troop came in and we sat around the campfire that night. And he's a cool dude. Dave Rastovich is a very cool character. And I just looked at him and thought, well, no one told you to do that. You just decided to do that. And now you've got people that are looking and listening and creating change because of your leadership. So I thought at that moment in time, maybe I could help out and do a similar thing. He's kind of a mystical character, Dave. He understands that connection with the natural world that perhaps some of us have lost. Yeah, if you ever watch this man body surf, he's like a dolphin. He literally body surfs with no flippers or anything and he'll like jump out like the dolphins do. He's a freak. <laughs> Around this time, you started work on Take Three for the Sea. You worked with two other women who'd actually had the idea before you met them. I wonder if you could share the story of what Take Three for the Sea tries to do and how it began. Yes, so the two other co-founders of Take Three for the Sea, Amanda Marichelle and Roberta Dixon-Volk. Amanda had just learned about the problem. She's a passionate surfer as well. And she thought, oh, there's something we can all do. Why don't we, when we leave the beach, we, we take five and we put it in the bin? And so she went to Roberta and they said, yeah, take five. And they looked up the URL and it was taken. And they were like, oh, OK. Because well, of high five. Because of high five, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so they chose Take 3 and they had this little document and this little plan around how they could keep the beaches clean on the central coast of New South Wales through this idea. And then I got introduced to them and was like, well, this is great. Way better than just going out there and cleaning up beaches is educating people and creating this behaviour change around this everyday action. Take three for the sea when you leave the beach or a park or a street or a car park or anywhere. If we got enough people doing it, we could really change this problem around. What was their background, Tim? So Roberta was active in NGO stuff, right? That's right. So Roberta is a marine ecologist and has worked for various charities over the years. Amanda, just uh, like she said, she'll call herself a, a passionate surfer but doesn't really bring any experience or skills into this landscape. But the enthusiasm and the authenticity around the uh, formation of Take Three is really something quite special. So now we're nine years old this year and it's been a long road but full of uplifting moments and success stories and now we just got some analysis back and we have found that just on Instagram the take three for the sea hashtag has originated in 129 countries. Wow that's that awesome amazing? well done. Yeah power yes, of social media. But also, Tim, it's partly the power of the simplicity of the message, isn't it? It's something everyone can do. It's just so easy. Why else does it work? 
Well, it's so tangible. It's so easy. I think once people see other people doing something like this, they feel compelled to get involved. So it has that sweet little viral element, which is so now. And obviously, it's a real genuine impact. You know that plastic bottle cap or that plastic straw you just picked up isn't going to be the one that ends up in an albatross or up a turtle's nostril. So you feel like you actually make a big difference right there by doing it. And it's very easily translatable, so... Go there, take three. There is an actual photograph of a turtle with a straw wedged up his poor little nostril. That happens. And just, you know, some of those photographs can be so horrible, but maybe we need to be jolted into seeing that these are the potential impacts of the way that we carry on. But I think the power of take three is in its great positivity. And Tim, I wonder if you might like to talk about how you go in and talk to kids. I was interviewing you for something else before a few weeks ago and I said to you how do you explain this problem to kids and I just remember you being like an albatross but there's something really lovely about how you communicate with people who perhaps don't know about some of this stuff to start with the philosophy we've sort of championed is education that inspires participation so I think that inspires peace is the one there's education that can make you feel a bit down and out right there's people out there who would love to just show you the gory images and you're there going Okay, and you suddenly you're in this state of paralysis. And so we really want to make you stand up and take awareness, and we'll do that with some of those images in schools, but then we'll tell a lovely story. And the story always concludes in how we could help to collectively avoid these problems by, by doing certain actions. So we try and take people through that journey, and it's all very solutions-focused. So our programs in schools, it's the students who develop the work plans, they workshop ideas, they come up with a plan about how they're going to solve the problem in their school or their home or their community. So making young people at the core of our programs has been a really integral part of it. Amazing. I want to talk about how we do it. So you, Tim, like to say that there is no waste in nature. I wonder if you might like to speak a little bit to this idea that we need to redesign the system so that we're not producing, consuming, and then disposing. Yeah, I think, you know, the term there, humans are the only ones that create waste that nature can't digest, uh, is a a good line. So we're the ones who have used this, uh, our technology and our smarts and innovation to design all these materials that nature simply can't accept. And so... That, to me, is the, is the first part of that story into the circular economy. How can we separate out the two major streams of our materials in life, be they organic-derived or technical-derived? And so, theoretically, in a circular economy future, anything which is organic by nature should be composted and biodegraded down so that it can then nourish the earth. It can actually be the nutrients to grow more food or grow more resources. And then on the other side, you've got technical nutrients. So it's wonderful that we've created 40,000 different types of plastic and a wealth of incredible materials, but they shouldn't be designed to be used once and then destined for landfill. They should be designed to be returned, disassembled and reprocessed. And so suddenly in the circular economy, you can see a model that would work long term huge complexity attached to it because the key being the economy piece at the moment it is much more economical for people to make stuff once and throw it away so we need to really look at how we're going to completely revolutionize the system into this circular context tell us about reusable 
Look, Rechewable is a little eco enterprise I started with my mum back in 2012. Did you with your mum? Yeah. I didn't know that. It was simply just because I was going out, hitting the, the speaking circuit, running all these events, and people were like, what's the simplest thing I can do? And I was like, well, don't use disposable plastic. Choose reusables instead. And so I, I sort of started this business on a premise of let's supply reusable alternatives to disposable plastic. So it's a marketplace where you can, you can buy them. We wholesale to, uh, to stores as well. And it's just a great way to give people options to live plastic-free or very low plastic lives. So not just bottles and cups, but forks? Yeah, exactly. Straws. Cutlery and straws and containers, really. And there's no reason now you can't go out there and try and live a zero waste or a low waste life they're very very accessible those items and you can even just take a fork from home or a a bottle from home it's not that hard to try and use less single-use plastic in your life if you just care and you try which is why plastic free july is such a great campaign getting people really into it all around the world we were talking about that before it's such a great campaign rebecca Prince Ruiz. She founded that in WA with three people from work initially, then 40 people from work as a Facebook group, and it now reaches millions globally. And her story is just such a great story for how uh, Rebecca Prince Ruiz. Plastic Free July. Oh, Plastic Free July. So it happens every July, and it's gone viral. It's absolutely huge, and it just shows the power of one woman's great idea or one person's great idea and what you can do with just a bit of momentum and a bit of community building. I love it. But I do have a question. In this environment, it's lovely, and it's so motivating to see how many people are switched on to doing things differently, and I find it really energising. But if you leave these environs... You just see loads of people with plastic. I live in a hipster neighbourhood of Sydney where lots of people have got lots of time on their hands and all think they're film directors and photographers. And yet, if these people who think they're so hip and got enough money for it can't get a keep cup, what are we going to do? Well, they probably do have a keep cup. They just haven't felt that motivational piece to go out there and use it and really, really make sure they bring it. And I think, once again, glass half full, look at the impact of war on waste and how that changed overnight people's attitudes. They went and dusted off those keep cups or they went to the store and bought one because they wanted to be seen to have their reusable cup. Mm. And so that's the momentum that we really need to harness. And I dare say it's happening at a very rapid rate at the moment. Look at this issue, how it's going absolutely gangbusters in the UK. UK at the moment, major press that are normally on the right side of things are championing these environmental messages around reducing plastic use and it's just go, it's sweeping across the world. So I really want to try and harness that. Let's get the celebrities out there. Let's really start to endorse the low plastic existence. I think a lot of that in the UK is to do with Blue Planet, isn't it? 14 million people tuned in to watch that in the UK and it's, it just shows the impact that that television can have, that talking in groups like this can have. Tim, what can we all do in this room to advance this conversation beyond making personal changes to our own lifestyles? i just say recognise your own sphere of influence. So you may be uh, an individual in a group of friends or family members who just don't get it. Just keep having those conversations. Just keep finding those uh, informative pieces on social media, sharing them around, spreading them. You don't need to be preachy about it. Or your sphere of influence might be the founders of an incredible organisation like the guys from Beach Patrol down here. So whatever your sphere of influence is, just keep doing what you're doing uh, and you can always do a little bit more. 
So it's not nothing radical. Obviously, we want to see policy change. We want to try and get much more corporate responsibility. But at the end of the day, that is all sort of where we're heading. So just keep on doing what you're doing and do a little bit more. And do beach cleans. If you see it, pick it up and bin it. That's simple. You know, if you've got an opportunity right then and there to get that plastic straw or that plastic bottle cap or plastic bag and put it into the waste stream as opposed to the uh, ocean pollution stream, I'd love you to do that. We're about to run out of time, but I would like to just finish by asking you, Tim, seven years ago you were interviewed about Take Three for the Sea and you said that you wanted it to become a global voice on marine debris. Has that happened and what are your hopes for the future? Yeah, I I guess so. I mean, 129 countries for this little project we started in a lounge room in Baddow Bay, New South Wales, is an astonishing achievement. So I'm really, really proud. But at the same time, I recognise that this is one of the greatest uh, challenges that we face. And it ties directly into conversations about sustainability and about the impacts that we're having on our planet. So I think if we can keep pioneering the plastic pollution and the plastic mitigation issues, then we're going to see a lot of other benefits fall out of it. You're an actual legend, Tim Silverwood. Can we have a hearty, warm round of applause? Thank you all for coming. I think our time is up, but can I urge you all, if you're on social media, to follow Take Three for the Sea, follow Rechoosable, spread the word, tell your friends, and thank you so much for listening. So please subscribe to my podcast. It is free in iTunes. You pay nothing. It's lovely. It's called Wardrobe Crisis. It's ostensibly about fashion, but I interview all kinds of people who don't care about fashion, like Tim Flannery. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you